Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Well, hey, good morning again. We are in a series in this season of Lent where we are journeying with God through the desert. And each year, the season of Lent begins with the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, in uh, the desert. And, and then through this season, we sort of journey with him toward the cross. And, and this year, we're focusing on this theme of the desert. And, and really, the season of Lent is an invitation into the desert. Now, now, what do I mean by that? Well, the desert can mean different things. Uh, on the one hand, as we've talked about, uh, the desert is this image of simplification and, and focus. And that's, by the way, why we fast during the season. It's really an opportunity to make space for more of God in our lives. And, and with that, this is a time of preparation for, for Easter. And it's also a time of really getting back to basics, back to really what matters most in our lives. And, and so that's kind of one side of this image of the desert. But on the other hand, this can also be, the desert can also be an image of trial, of of hardship. And, and often when we're in a desert season in our life, this can be a time where we experience loneliness, we can experience depression, we can experience anxiety and, and fear. And really that's what we're going to talk about today, how we can journey with God through those things. And to help us today, we're looking at the life of an amazing human being, a man named Elijah. Now, if you've been around the church at all, you know the name Elijah. He's one of those heroes of the faith. But if you haven't actually read much of the Bible, you might think, you know, I wish I had a life like Elijah. Because I think what we tend to do is we compare the highlight reel of people like Elijah to our lives. And we say, gosh, I want that. But if you actually see the space between those highlights, you might actually have a different response. And today we're going to look at the space between the highlights, because through that we are going to learn something very, uh, very important about how to navigate depression and, and anxiety and loneliness in our lives. Because Elijah, I love this, the Bible says Elijah was a person just like us, James 5, 17. He was a person just like us. And I think God wants us to know that because although he was just like us, he had a life that was very different than us. And just think about his life. And you may know some of this story, but I'll kind of just kind of recap some of this for you. But although he was a person just like us, we are told that he prayed that it would not rain and it did not rain for three and a half years. That, that's a guy you want on your prayer team, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's a guy you want praying for you. Uh, and, and, uh, pretty amazing. So three and a half years, it did not rain. Then he prayed again and it rained. And, and just prior to, and actually he prayed about other things during this time, but just prior to the passage we're looking at today, there's this famous story of the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Asherah, false prophets. And so here's kind of, I just want to set this up and then we'll kind of walk through this story together. But here's the scene. So Israel has been really pulled into worshiping false gods. And Elijah, he's like, we need to put a stop to this. And so he gets this idea. 
And, and, and so he, he approaches King Ahab, who is this just tremendously corrupt ruler. And he says, here's what we're going to do. You gather 950 of your best prophets. Again, we're talking about false prophets here. And he says, have them meet me in the OK Corral. I mean, sorry, uh, Mount Carmel. But, but that's what this is like here, right? Uh, so the people, they gather there. And Elijah says to them, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. So it's kind of the showdown. And, and so he says, Here, here's how this is going to happen. He says, let's build two altar, altars. You build an altar and I will build an altar. You pray to your gods, I'll pray to my God. And then we're going to see whose God rains down fire from heaven to light the altar on fire. And then we will know whose God really is God and who we should follow. And people are listening. They're like, you know, sounds like a great idea. Let's, let's do it. And by the way, you just got to love Elijah's chutzpah here. He just, you just got to love this guy. Uh, so those 950 prophets, they build their altar and they're crying out to their God all day long, but nothing happened. And as I once heard a pastor say, it is really hard to move a God that does not exist. So they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. Nothing happened. And so we are told they begin to slash their bodies because their religion is so dark. And by the way, never let anyone tell you that all religions are the same. It's just not true. So Elijah, he's watching all this go down and he's sort of like, almost like this, kind of this dark stand-up comic. Uh, he's not exactly the most compassionate. He's an amazing guy, but he's not the most compassionate person in the Bible. And so, you know, they're doing all this and he almost kind of starts taunting them. You know, they're dancing around and shouting. He's like, you know, perhaps you need to pray louder. You know, maybe your God's indisposed. Can't, maybe he can't hear you, right? Maybe he's, maybe he's taken a nap. Maybe he's gone on a vacation somewhere. So just, you know, maybe pray louder. And so they get even more frantic. They dance harder. They, they shout and they pray louder, but nothing happens. And so then eventually it's Elijah's turn. And, and, and he, he had to make it more dramatic. He just had a bit of a flair for the dramatic. And so he said, here's what I would like you to do. Gather four jugs of water, and I want you to pour it all over my altar. They do it, and he said, do it again. They do it, and he says, do it again. Until the thing is just drenched. And it's just water, it's just overflowing. It's just absolutely soaked. And then he just prays this simple prayer. And he basically says, God... Let these people know that you are God. And he prays, and then fire comes down from heaven and consumes the altar. And it's just this, and actually not only his altar, it it consumes the other altar too, right? It's just this over-the-top, amazing moment of triumph. And this is the moment right before the moment where we pick up this story. And so 1 Kings chapter 9, beginning in verse 1 After this just epic moment in Elijah's life, it says, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. Now let's stop there. It's interesting. Well, I'll get to that. In case you don't know these names, uh, Ahab and Jezebel, so they are like notorious uh, rulers uh, in the history of of the Bible. Uh, They were, just in human history, they were cruel, they were violent, they were malevolent. Uh, and so Ahab, who is king, tells his wife Jezebel, who is queen, uh, quote, everything that Elijah had done. Now, what's interesting about this is that I think this gives us a bit of a peek into Ahab's spiritual blindness, which is something we can, we can, we can, we can suffer from. And so think about this. He had just witnessed God rain down fire from heaven. 
he had witnessed this miraculous thing happen with the drought and then the rain uh, and the subsequent sending of rain. Yet Ahab attributes all of this to Elijah, as though Elijah could do that. No reference to God whatsoever. And I think it just illustrates sometimes how, how blind we can be to God and to his glory and what he's doing. Now, Elijah did have the false prophets put to the sword. And so Ahab mentions that to Jezebel too. And as you can imagine, she was um, the leader of the cult of Baal, this, this false religion in Israel. And so as you can imagine, she was not happy about this. And so verse two, it says, so Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Put simply, I'm going to kill you, right? That's the threat. Now, now how would you expect Elijah to respond in light of what just went down? I mean, this is a guy, actually, he's seen, even before this, even more miracles. He's seen uh, a, a woman's, he was staying with a widow one time, her son died, he prayed, he laid upon him, the, the man was raised. I mean, he's seen amazing things happen. But again, he just saw fire come down from heaven at his word. This, this miraculous answer to prayer with the rain coming. And so in light of that, you know, how, you know, how would you expect him to respond? I, mean, I think I'd be like, bring it on, right? I mean, like, bring it on. Let's, let's go for it. Give me your best shot. I got, I got God behind me here, you know, but that's not what happens. So let's, let's check this out. Verse three. It says, Elijah, again, this is amazing. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. I mean, wait, what? I mean, we might do that, but we don't expect Elijah to do that. And by the way, I just love how honest the Bible is about its heroes. And that is one of the ways we know that this is so authentic uh, and real and genuine. But let's just apply this for a minute. You know, have you ever thought, you know, if I just had one miracle, then my faith would be solid. You know, then I wouldn't doubt anymore. Then, you know, then I would just be, then I would be okay. Have you ever thought that? Well, I think what we see here is it's, it's not that simple because again, Elijah saw fire come down from heaven. He, he, he saw all these things happen, but then the next moment he's running for his life because Jezebel threatened to kill him. So why was Elijah so afraid? Now, Jezebel was a powerful woman. And by the way, uh, the idea of a powerful woman, that's not a modern secular development. That's actually a biblical idea that, that men and women are both created equally in the image of God. And so we see a Bible filled with these, these powerful, strong women. Like on the good side, there's Deborah, who is a judge in the Old Testament, and she literally kicked butt. I mean, she literally kicked butt. And then on the, on the bad side, we've got, uh, you know, Jezebel. And she's just like this ruthless and intimidating figure. And even though her husband, uh, Ahab is king, he is, he's afraid of her. And so she's this powerful woman, but I think there's, there's a lot more going on in this story. As we think about this passage, I think we're going to learn something about the dynamics of fear and anxiety. So, so why did Elijah, on the heels of this amazing victory, just sort of crumble and, and, and run away in, in fear? Now, you might think, well, why wouldn't he? I mean, he, his life just got threatened. Well, think about this. I mean, and he has just kind of this miraculous power of God behind him. Uh, that's the first thing. Uh, but second, as commentators point out, it is almost certain that Jezebel wouldn't dare to lay a hand on him in violence, not only in light of the power of God that's been displayed, but also because at the end of the showdown at Mount Carmel that a lot of people repented in that moment, 
right? And so she wouldn't want to run afoul of that crowd. And so that's why she sent a messenger to him. Think about this. She sent a messenger to him, not a hit squad. If her goal was to kill him, she would have done the other, right? And so think about the dynamics of this situation. The best Jezebel can do is to threaten Elijah. Yet what we see here is that that is all it took to make his world come crashing down. And he just sort of spun out in fear and anxiety and he ran away. And this reminds me how the New Testament tells us that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. And here's what you need to know about how, how lions hunt. Often they will encircle their prey and they will roar. And it's sort of like this psychological warfare. And this, you have to know, is one of the enemy's greatest tricks. And so often it's all roar, it's all bark, it's all threat, but too often that's all it takes to take us down because we can fall for it. And it's sort of like, I don't know if you remember the end of The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy shows up, she finally, she's in the Emerald City and she finally meets The Wizard of Oz. And, and he, he comes at her with all this pyrotechnics and, and fire and this booming voice and she is afraid. Turns out it's just this little guy behind a curtain. All bark, no bite. There's no reality in it. And, and too, too often that's how it is with fear and anxiety. And so I, I just can't help but wonder how many of us are running for our lives, not because of the reality of what's happening, but because of the fear of what might happen. And that's what's going on in this, this story. The mere possibility of being killed by Jezebel sent Elijah running. Now, have you ever had something in your life where you're like really anxious about it? You're like nervous, like it's stealing your joy, it's, it's stealing your peace, you're having trouble being present, you're so preoccupied with whatever that is, and then it turns out, some time goes by, it turns out it was nothing. Like it was nothing. I had that happen just recently. I'm thinking, I, I can't believe I keep falling for this. I can't believe it. It's crazy. And one of the things I've struggled with in my life is what ifing. I don't know if you've ever struggled with that. And you know, you know, well, what, what, wait, what if this happens? Or what, what if that happens? And, and for me, for whatever reason, it's always worst case scenario. I don't know why that is. And, and I got thinking this past week, why is it that we only what if on the negative side? Like, why don't we, or at least why don't I ever what if on the positive side? You know, like, what if this conversation goes amazingly well? What if that? Or what if, here's, here's a timely example, what if I actually am going to be able to pay my taxes? That, that would be great. How, you know, what if? And what if, even if things went poorly, that nothing could separate me from the love of my God in Christ Jesus, my Lord? What if that? What if that? So, oh man, getting fired up here. <laughs> but do you see how sinister fear and anxiety can be? But I also want you to see that it can happen to the best of us. Again, Elijah, for all his foibles and his brokenness, he was a hero in the faith, and he struggled with this. So don't beat yourself up if you're struggling with this too. So again, Elijah was afraid of what Jezebel might do to him. He's afraid 
he's overwhelmed, and he runs. And how often do we do that? We're afraid of what we might get hurt, and so we run. This past week, I was hanging out with a pastor, amazing guy. He's, I won't tell you who, uh, but he's reaching a lot of millennials in the Pacific Northwest. And he was sharing that because there's such a high percentage of millennials in his church that they're actually really struggling with relationship and community. And here's why. Because now for the first time ever, there is a generation where 60% or more of people are coming out of broken homes. And they're so afraid to get hurt. And so they're afraid to get close. They're afraid to get in relationship and they're just running from each other. And, and, and see, when we are afraid of the possibility of getting hurt, we, we miss out on what God wants. So, so don't let the possibility of being hurt steal from you the reality of knowing God's love from, from him, from his people. So Elijah is afraid and he runs for his life. And then in verse three, it says, when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left a servant there, verse four, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, into the desert. He came through a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I want you to notice here that on the heels of Elijah's greatest victory, he experiences his moment of greatest fragility. And I think sometimes we think that if, you know, if I just had success, you know, if I just had the big win, then I'd be okay. You know, then I'd have peace. You know, then I'd be happy. Then I'd have hope in my life. But I want you to see here that's not how it works. I mean, success will not make you immune to fear or anxiety or worry. It won't make you immune from feeling like a failure. Now, success, it's wonderful as as far as it goes. And, you know, take it when you can get it. But it is a false hope for something that will secure your identity and, and your life. Only God can anchor your life. Only God can anchor your identity. Now, another thing we see in this verse is sort of this, this loneliness that we can feel in the desert. Erwin McManus, who's helped my thinking on this story, he makes this great observation that oftentimes we actually materialize our greatest fears. So, so think about this. What's fascinating about this narrative is that uh, prior in this narrative, every time Elijah moves locales, it's, it's always because God said, hey, now I want you to go here. Okay, now I want you to go here. There's this widow in this village over here, or now I want you to go to this river or whatever. God is always directing. But here for the first time in the entire narrative, Elijah just sort of kind of goes AWOL. He does his own thing. Uh, and he's running into the desert. First time that this happens where he's doing that of his own, kind of of his own accord. And I think what's going on here is that he believed he was living in a desert. And so he ran into a desert. He believed that God abandoned him, and so he abandoned God, in a sense. Now, notice in verse 3, it says he let his servant go. Now, what's going on here? Well, this is not because Elijah was like this super wealthy guy. That's not what's going on here. The reason he had a servant was because he was a prophet. In other words, this is sort of like his ministry staff. And so imagine that if I were to say to Paul and Alma, who are on staff here, you know what, guys? Go home. Don't come back. Just go home. What would that mean? It means I'm done. I'm resigning. I'm done with ministry. I quit. That's what's going on. He's saying, God, I quit. Tells us, just go home. He's just so afraid. He feels so alone. I think actually part of he's also isolating here. We can often do that when we're depressed. It can be this, this dangerous thing. We just isolate. And it says he went a day's journey. He left his servant behind. And then it gets really dark. 
because he believed that his life was over, he prayed that his life would be over. And then it says he sits down under a broom bush, and I can, you can almost just kind of picture him kind of just kind of collapsing here. Uh, and by the way, broom bush, this would be one of the only plants that would provide shade in this sort of desolate environment. And so he sits down to pray, but this is, this is a dark prayer. And he's just so low right now that he just prays that he might die. And, and there's a little humor here. It's dark humor. Uh, but, but think about this. What is he running from? Fear that someone will take his life. And he's saying, God, take my life. It's just kind of like this incoherence that God's like, wait, well, then why are you running away? Like, wait, I don't get it, you know? So, so it's, it's dark humor, but it's, it's there. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is a bit surprising, though. I mean, I mean, again, this is the guy who called, this is the, he's the confidence, he's kind of that confidence he had. You know, bring your best prophets, 950, you know? And he, he calls them fire from heaven. And now the only thing he can think to ask God is, God, would you take my life? And can I just suggest that that should never be your plan A? I mean, can't, we, we can think of some better prayer requests, right? I mean, how about God, would you send your spirit to lead Jezebel to repentance and conversion? God, would you send a host of angels to surround me? I mean, can't we, we, we anything, right? Anything but that. There's some, there's some better prayers we could pray. But he's just so low in this moment that he can't see beyond his pain. So I want to ask, like, what is going on here? Like, how did he get this low? Um, how, did, how did he get it? Because this doesn't happen overnight, right? I mean, you don't go from, you know, top of the world to all of a sudden, take my life, God. You know, that, that just doesn't happen. So what's going on? I think at least a couple of things. And first of all, I can't help but think of the years of stress and strain he's experienced in ministry. Part of that, I know what it's like to do ministry, but then this is, Elijah's story is like at a whole nother level. I mean, whole nother level. I can't think of like probably the trauma and the stress. He's probably been running on adrenaline for like years, you know? So that just finally, it's kind of taking its toll. He's just exhausted. I mean, you can just kind of hear it on him. He's just exhausted. But that's just part of the story. And I, I think part of what's going on on a deeper level is disillusionment and disappointment. Have you ever seen a, a basketball game where the losing team on the bench, like they've got their heads down, they got like their, you know, their their uh, their their you know their their, their kind of the hand, uh, their head in their hands, and they've got the towel over their head. Like, what's going on there? Well, that's not. They don't do that just because they're losing, right? That you don't do that just because you're losing. The reason you do that is because you expected to win. That's when the disappointment. That's when that kind of disillusionment hits, and you just you shut down. And I, I think. So often when we get into these deep, dark places, it's because we had an expectation and it was dashed. That is, I, I think that is what's going on here. And, and all the commentators I read on this agree that Elijah didn't just think that, that the thing on Mount Carmel was going to be a victory. He thought it was going to be the victory. He thought this is going to be the moment that turns the tide for Israel. That this will be the moment when false worship stops, either because Jezebel and Ahab repent or because they are ousted because there's such a popular uprising, such a revival for God, yet it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And Elijah is crushed. He is disappointed. God, where are you? And, and he, just, he just gives up. Not just on himself, not just on God, but on life. On life. Because the just reality collided with his assumption. By the way, that was his assumption. 
And so often that's what happens. We have an assumption, well, of course, God is going to do this. Of, of course, this is God's plan. But so often his ways are above ours. And when that doesn't match with his actual plan, we just, we just lose it. We just, have you ever been there? You know, perhaps you thought, you know, this is going to be the job. This will be the job. And it wasn't. Or he thought, you know, this is going to be the relationship. And it wasn't. And when those sorts of things happen, when, when the reality collides with our expectations, our world, like Elijah's, can come crashing down. So as a result of this, Elijah, he's just this broken man. He's exhausted. He's depressed. And of course, there are degrees of depression and of exhaustion, but he is just at a breaking point. He says, God, I've had enough. Verse four, I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Now, this might surprise you, but Elijah is actually not the first faithful, God-loving person in scripture to pray this prayer. He's not, and somehow for 2,000 years of church history, we've, it's, it's like we've over, just, I don't know, skipped over these passages. But I believe that now is a moment we have to talk about this. So I just want to pause for a moment because, I mean, we are in a crisis in our culture, a crisis of despair. And that is no exaggeration. I mean, just think of all the celebrities, people who, uh, you know, you would think they had it all. Yet they couldn't find one reason to live. Think of just in the, recently, I mean, Anthony Bourdain, Kate Spade, and before that, Robin Williams, I mean, on and on and on. And, and probably so many of us know someone who gave up hope, who took their life. And, and there may be some in this room who are fighting this battle right now, and I want you to know that you are not alone. You are not alone. God is with you even if you can't perceive him right now, and we are with you. We want to support you. We want to pray for you. And Jesus' heart for you is life, that you would choose life. Jesus said that the enemy, he comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus said of himself, he said, I have come that you may have life. That is his purpose for you, life. And I want you to know that I'm I'm not just talking today as someone who who doesn't know this struggle. And and I don't know if you'll be able to handle this, but I don't care. I'm going there. Um, um, That I, I went through a really dark time in my life some years ago. Really dark, so dark. It was like my life was like a waking nightmare. No exaggeration. It was so painful. I was so depressed. I was so down. I could hardly see any light. There's just so much darkness surrounding me. And I eventually got to the point, by God's grace, because of my theology, I would never do anything to harm myself. And notice that Elijah never does anything to harm himself, but he did. And I did. I just, the pain got so great. I said, God, would you just take me out? I just can't do it anymore. God, would you just take me out. And I prayed that prayer way too many times. Thankfully, there are some, think about this. Thankfully, there are some prayers that God doesn't answer. Thankfully, there are some prayers that God doesn't answer because he refuses to let you give up. He's not going to bless that prayer because he has life for you. He has purpose for you. He has a destiny for you. He created you for a purpose. And so I, I, I know this struggle and I just feel like we have to, if we can't talk about that here, where can we talk about this, right? That the church is supposed to be a beacon of light and hope for the world. And so I want you to know, this is a safe place to talk about these things, to get prayer, to get support. So Elijah, he's just, he's just, at, he's just at this breaking point. And, and before we move on, I just want to 
address something, because I know some of us come from different backgrounds where there's maybe been some twisted theology. I've had some friends who shared with me. They came from a background where they were told that if they were depressed, they were in sin. Like, whoa. And there's all this shame and like you couldn't talk about it. I have a pastor friend who told me he was once a part of a church where, I don't know if you remember Matt Redmond's famous song from like, I think it was like early 2000s, Blessed Be Your Name. And, uh, you know, there's a part, and this is a Bible verse, by the way, where it says, you give and take away. And like, they couldn't handle that. And so they change it to, you lead and make away. Now that's biblical too, but like, they just couldn't handle talking about this stuff. Or the other one, there's another part where it says, though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. They couldn't handle that. Say, though there's joy in the offering. It's like, it just destroys the meaning of the song. But so often we, we've come from these environments where it's not safe to talk about these things. We feel like, oh, we've always got to be happy. Going to church, put, put that smile on. I don't care how you're feeling, put that smile on. That is not reality. God wants you to know that he is with you right where you are, even in the pain, even in the depression, the loneliness, the despair. He is right there with you. He is with you. And so if you're struggling today, I just want you to know, here's what that means. It means you're human. You're human. And also you're in good company because Elijah, he was in the hall of fame, of faith. You're in, you're in good company. So if, if, if you're struggling today, don't uh, beat yourself up. Don't deny it because you cannot win a battle you do not acknowledge exists. So just be real with yourself, with God, with others. And I think there is something, even though Elijah, he's kind of off the rails, he's, his perspective is skewed as we see even more clearly as the story continues on, that even though that's the case, there's something he does here that is so important that it's really important for us to learn from. You see, Elijah thought that he was alone, but he wasn't. God was there the whole time. And in a moment, we'll see how God encountered him in, in, in this moment of pain. But first, let's see what he did. And, and, and what we see here is that amidst his pain and just amidst his fear and amidst his depression, what he did is he invited God in. He invited God in. And you see, God wants to bring hope. He wants to bring healing. He wants to bring transformation in your life. But he's not going to be able to do that if you won't let him in, right? If you just sort of give him the facade, it's like this barrier to what he wants to do in your life. And so what Elijah does really well and what we can learn from is that he is vulnerable with God. He is vulnerable with God. And he he comes to God with all his heart and all his brokenness. And, and, And you see, that gives God something to work with when we actually just pour it all out before him. And so in verse four, he says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Now, in this moment, um, Elijah, he feels alone, but I want you uh, to really realize that your feelings of depression or failure or anxiety do not mean that God is not present with you. He is there. And I want you to, to remind you today that God says from Hebrews 13, verse five, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That is God's promise. Never will he leave you. Never will he forsake you. Even in the darkest valley, even in the driest desert. Now, I want to keep going here in this story. So Elijah, he believes he's alone. And then in verse five, it says, then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Now, how many of you have ever been depressed? Like, you just want to sleep, right? I don't know. I, I, I've been there. I just I just want to sleep because reality hurts. I, I'm just, I just want to sleep. And so this is, you can just see how depressed he is here. And, and the other thing is that I, I for me, uh, I, I like to eat comfort food. And for me, uh, that's donuts. Um, I don't do that off, very often, sometimes. 
<laughs> now you might think, now, now come on, Michael, uh, just you know, just trust God. But I want to show you what happens next. So uh, so Elijah invited God into his mess, into his pain, into his brokenness. He opened his heart up to him, and then something really beautiful happens here. Verse five again. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. And all at once, an angel touched him. Now this is beautiful. See, if if I were God, I don't know if I would have come like this and, and just touched him. I think if I were God, I might have been tempted to kind of say, snap out of it, and just kind of maybe slap around a little bit. Like, you know, come on, buddy. Like, I've given you more miracles than anyone in human history up to this point, except maybe Moses, and you're moping around. And you say, so I might have been tempted. Thankfully, I'm not God. <laughs> but instead, God just comes with this kindness and this love and and and, and this mercy. He just, he brings his loving presence through through the angel of the Lord, and and he gives him food that nourishes him. And you see that the grace in all this. And just think about it. Just think about the grace in all of this. I mean, here's Elijah. He's running away. He's giving up. He's calling it quits. He's feeling sorry for himself, overlooking all the ways that God's been there for him. And he's just got these blinders on. But here, out of sheer, just unearned grace and love, God ministers to him in this beautiful way. So further on in verse 5, it says, All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. So gentle. Now you might think that that doesn't sound very spiritual. I mean, get up and eat like that's what God wants him to do. Like, like really? Yeah. And I want you to understand that you are actually a, a complex being created in the image of God. So that means you have a soul, but that also means you have a body. And actually, God cares about both. He cares about the whole person. He wants to bring healing and redemption to the wholeness, the entirety of your life. He cares about both. And so sometimes this spiritual thing is actually to eat. One time I was going through a rough season. I was meeting with a counselor and she had the wisdom to ask me a good question. She said, when was the last time you did something for yourself? And I thought, huh. That's a good question. I'm thinking, thinking, thinking. She says, okay, that's been too long. Here's your homework this week. I want you to do something to care for yourself. Maybe that's get a massage. Maybe that's go to the beach. Maybe that's eat some good food, but you need to take care of yourself. That is actually spiritual. That's not just some like self-helpish thing. Like that's actually, it's, it's in the book. You're a holistic being. God cares about your entire life. And by the way, all the different parts of your life that as modern Western people we think are separate are actually all connected. So if your spiritual life's messed up, guess what? Your emotional life's probably going to be messed up. And, and then probably then your physical life and your sleep's going to be messed up. And then all, see, all these things, it's just all, your relationships, it's all connected. You can't just like isolate this part of your life from this part. It's all connected. So you have to care about. And God does. And I just want you to see the wisdom of God in this. The wisdom of God. He is so wise, and he is so gracious. He is so gracious. So because, again, he went into the desert not to survive out here. He went to die, and so he didn't bring any food with him. So God, thank God, in his mercy, uh, it says here, verse 6, Elijah, he looked around, and thereby, he said, was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. Now go with me for a minute. Baked bread over hot coals. Well, sugar, poke a hole in the middle. <laughs> Donuts. I'm just saying, there's a biblical rationale for donuts. And I will claim that every time. <laughs> but seriously, 
<laughs> Verse 6, he ate and drank and then lay down again. And which is what happens when you're depressed, you know, you just eat some comfort food, and then you're, you're going to sleep again, right? And so that's what happens here. But then verse 7, the angel came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. Now, I love that, 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 that he's just caring and corrective in the same moment. You know, you need to get up and, and eat because, you know, this is not the end of your story. This is actually just the beginning of your new story. And yes, you're right. The journey is too hard for you. But guess what? Get up because the journey is too much for you. Now, like, wait, what, what's he getting at here? I think some of us, we can get mad at God because the journey has been too much for us. But think about this. Why would God ever call you to a journey that is too little for you? Why would he do that? Why would he ever call you to a life that's too small for what he's placed inside of you? Why would he ever call you to a, a quest that requires less of you and, and no, no room for him? So of course he's going to call you to a journey that's too much for you so that you can actually open yourself to him so you can learn to walk with him and lean on him and so that he can take you where you cannot go alone. You see, if, if God called us to a small life, then I think we have much less opportunity to learn to actually walk with him, to learn to actually lean on him and trust him. And just this past week as I was preparing this, I, this the words of an old hymn came to mind. So I just want to read these to you. What a fellowship. What a joy divine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. What a blessedness. What a peace is mine. Leaning on the everlasting arms. God wants us to lean on him. And so he calls us to a really big life so that he kind of, he kind of it's almost incentivized. Hey, I want you to learn to trust me here. Leaning on the everlasting arms. You see, even though Elijah was in a desert, both literal and metaphorical, he learned to lean on God's everlasting arms. And he experienced the nearness of God in this moment. And so verse eight, he got up and he ate and, ate and drank, strengthened by that food, it says. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai the mountain of God. Now, I just love this. As someone, we'll wrap up in just a second. As someone commenting on this passage pointed out that running from God, he had the strength to run from one, for one day, but walking with God, he could walk 40 days. Isn't that awesome? Now, originally, I want to preach all the way to verse 18, but uh, so much for that. Um, there's just so much richness here. So maybe we'll get to that next week. But as I wrap this up, I just want to invite the band to come back up. Now, some of you are, are probably exhausted from trying to live life without the God who created you. So the invitation is for us to, to come to him, whether for the first time or whether for the millionth time. And so I just want to close with this thought. One of the things we see in this passage is the gospel. And that's just an old word, which means good news. And, and one way of putting it, and this isn't original to me, but one way of putting it is that we are far more broken and sinful than we ever dared hope. You see, Elijah in this story, he's just so much more broken than he ever realized or dared hope. But at the very same time, he and you and I are way more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And in the midst of his darkest moment, his, his greatest fear, God comes in with grace and love and mercy. And he wants us to just receive that today, to receive that kind of care that he expressed to Elijah. That is his heart towards you. And so that is the invitation. Will you open your heart to him today? Will you invite him in? Will you lean on his everlasting arms? I invite you just to bow your heads with me in prayer. And, and there may be some of you here today who are um, 
really struggling today, I just encourage you. I, I just ask you, just don't leave today without getting prayer. Our prayer team will be off to the side during communion. They would love to pray for you. And if they get busy, I would love to pray for you after the service. But, but let's just pray together. So Lord, we uh, thank you that you are God who is with us, God, even in the desert, even in the valley, even in the darkest times. God, and I pray for every person here that they would just sense and know that you are with them. And I just pray you bring hope. Lift any despair. Bring healing and deliverance to any anxiety or fear or worry or depression. In Jesus' name.